You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome for today's podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Hans-Jakob Schindler, who is the Senior Director at the Counter-Extremism Project. In today's podcast with Hans, we will respond to the breaking news of Ayman al-Zawahiri, current uh, Emir of Al-Qaeda and longtime deputy to Osama bin Laden, who was killed by US forces in Kabul last Saturday. Zawahiri's death is currently all over the news and raises questions about the succession and relevance of Al-Qaeda in the current terrorist threat landscape. Hans, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. So let's jump straight into it, Hans. Uh, obviously, you're very familiar with Al-Zawahiri, who had been Osama bin Laden's uh, longtime deputy uh, and, of course, was um, instrumental uh, in the 9-11 attacks. 21 years on from 9-11, um, he's been killed. So uh, maybe tell us what's your first re- what, what was your first reaction to that news? I mean, to be totally honest, there are really three major points that have to be taken into consideration here. So number one, uh, he was killed in Kabul. He was killed in a house belonging to the acting interior minister of Afghanistan, Jun Haqqani, which really is, if anyone needed any proof um, that the Taliban are willing and, uh, uh, you know, do harbor al-Qaeda operatives, this is, I think, the clearest proof we have to date that this is, in fact, the case. So they're really not a reliable counterterrorism partner, regardless of what assurance they have given officially or to the American administration in confidence in the past. The second really important thing is that he was killed in Kabul. That means the Taliban are not able to protect him. This is, uh, I had pointed out in other for uh, before that it was really striking that while the leaders of the Islamic State tend to make no statements, no videos, no pronouncements to their global network, Zawahiri, who had not spoken publicly between 2019 and 2020, and was so secretive to the extent that there was a discussion that he may actually no longer be alive at that point, felt apparently very, very secure once the Taliban took over. He released a video in September 2021, in November 2021, in February and in April 2022, which really clearly showed that he felt operational security um, was great, um, apparently a mistake. And the third reason really is, the third really big um, news here is that the Americans still have apparently very reliable sources on the ground, at least in Kabul, which is a very, very positive and welcome news. Because if the media announcements are correct, that they already knew of this location and him being there in April and waited until all conditions were perfect to take out such a high uh, value target, that means they must have had very, very good trust in the reliability of not only the information, but also their network and their ability to potentially track this individual if he would have moved locations. So really three three big messages. For Al-Qaeda, this is unfortunately operationally not that impactful because Zawahiri and whoever is going to be 
the leader after Sawahiri um, is not was and is not involved in operations in Al Qaeda anymore. So what happened in Kabul doesn't really have an operational impact in West Africa or in Southeast Asia, where Al Qaeda is very successfully operating at this point. However, there is a succession crisis now because the whole way that this network functions and the reason why the leader is not operationally involved anymore is because he's to be senior because all of the leaders of all of the affiliates need to swear allegiance personally to him. So you can't just name any old individual. It needs to be known who the individual is in the in the network. And the individual needs to be the spiritus rector, the ideological guidance guy, and the guy who directs the propaganda worldwide. And so you need a certain profile of that guy. And that's not easy to find because a lot of the senior Al-Qaeda leaders, and we can talk a little bit about uh, Al-Zawahiri's quite fascinating biography if you want to, are dead. Um, either have been killed in battle or killed by counterterrorism operations. So the bench is very, very, very small. In particular, since Al-Qaeda is not only a terrorist organization, but also a very inherently racist organization. So, yes, you have massive leaders like Iyad Agali, who command really thousands of fighters in West Africa and are very successful. But the guy is a Tuareg. So he's in no way, shape or form uh, having any chance of becoming the leader. So it has to be an Arab. I mean, I remember when Sawahiri took over, there was even a discussion inside the networks of Al-Qaeda how an Egyptian could lead Al-Qaeda because Egyptians, according to Al-Qaeda, only somewhat Arab and not total Arab. So now they have a much, much bigger problem. Um, that so, they're running out of, of individuals that they could name lead. So quick follow-up point. Um, you know, in terms of his background, as you said, he's, he's a fascinating um, history, family background, uh, etc. And his ascent to the leadership of Al-Qaeda is and was very interesting. Um, maybe give us just a picture of, of the guy and um, what, what led him to become the sort of spiritual leader of Al-Qaeda? Yeah, so he's an Egyptian, um, trained doctor, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood in his youth, um, fan of Said Qut, who famously got executed by Nasser in Egypt, involved and arrested in the aftermath of the coup to kill President Sadat, uh, went then uh, to Afghanistan to fight there, um, met there Osama bin Laden, stayed with him all the way through the war against the Soviet Union, went with him to Sudan afterwards, came with Osama bin Laden back, all the while being leader of an Egyptian terror group called the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was also one of the signatures of the declaration that is really seen as the founding or one of the founding documents of Al-Qaeda, the declaration against the Crusader in the West. And then from the beginning was involved in building up this ideology of Al-Qaeda as a global terrorist movement with the aim to strike the far enemy rather than doing terror attacks in Islamic countries in order to get the enemy, i.e. the West and the Americans, out of uh, the Middle East and then Islamicize uh, and topple the regimes in the region after the Americans have left. So a really key individual in the organization, taken over from Osama bin Laden after the death in uh, his uh, killing in 2011, and then really following through with the idea of a networked organization. Under Osama bin Laden, you had this beginning transformation after 2001 of Al-Qaeda from a hierarchical organization to having affiliates around the world that are connected to a center. But Bin Laden really wanted to be involved in what the affiliates do. And there were a lot of about letters about how much money is spent and what operational decisions have to be done. And Bin Laden had a high standard of who should be an affiliate and who shouldn't be an affiliate. And Zawahiri really took this and 
built this organization out as a, I always said the, the McDonald's of terrorist organizations where you have your branch and you basically have to adhere to certain minimum standards and you can be part. For example, Al-Shabaab, a very, very successful terror organization in Somalia, running large parts of the country at this point, tried, I think, six times under Osama Bin Laden to be accepted by him as an affiliate. Didn't happen. As soon as Sabahiri came in, pretty much one of the first things he did was to accept Al-Shabaab as an affiliate and let them operate in Somalia without really any closer connections to the center. The second really important thing is that he weathered the Arab Spring, um, a, a period where revolution and democratic transformation seemed possible in the Middle East without terrorist means, and Al-Qaeda survived. That and Al-Qaeda survived um, Sabahiri's greatest failure to ensure that Baghdadi um, didn't combine Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Al-Qaeda in Syria and called it now the Islamic State and declared himself caliphate. So Zawahiri didn't panic. He sat back. He established a new affiliate, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, now very, very active in Afghanistan as well, and waited patiently for Afghanistan to play out. And in the end, I know there was a lot of criticism, especially when the Islamic State was coming up. And a lot of experts said, well, Zawahiri doesn't have an appeal. He's talking uh, very boringly in his videos. You know, look at this sneak. Islamic State propaganda. I would just like to mention that there is no longer a caliphate. The caliph is dead and the West has left Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda is now again, like in the 90s, proven by the killing of Sabahiri in Kabul, firmly under the protection of the Taliban. So the long-term patient strategy really paid off while the short-term flushy strategy had major setbacks. Mm -hmm. A question, I mean, I think uh, the point about Al-Qaeda being embedded now once again in Afghanistan under the Taliban, you know, is a point of contention, of course, in terms of the, the Western withdrawal from Afghanistan last year and, you know, how it, how it was conducted and the implications for uh, security, um, not just in the region. I suppose the counter the counterpoint to that perhaps is um, the successful strike on al-Zawahiri, you know, can be, and I think is being interpreted by by some as a vindication of the U.S. administration's approach to Afghanistan over the last twelve months, and um, uh, and you know also of the so-called over the horizon um, counterterrorism strategy. What's your take on that? Look, I mean, certainly this is a relief that this is still possible. However, Afghanistan is bigger than Kabul. And it's always easier in a high-density urban area that you controlled, i.e. me, the West, the US, controlled for 20 years to maintain some information network. The problem is not Kabul. The problem is Uruzgan, Helmand, Kandahar, Kuna, Paktika, these provinces where we had the terror camp network in 2001. And they weren't in Kabul. No Al-Qaeda fighter was in Kabul in 2001. They were spread around in these more remote provinces. The problem that I see is that the Taliban are, you know, whatever assurances they may or may not have given, they, they have taken all the steps that you would expect them to take. They concentrated the foreign terrorist fighters. They officially integrated them as special forces within the Afghan military. They housed them in separate camps away from other military. This is very much looking like a terror camp network structure being merged. And the fact that we haven't had a Al-Qaeda attack less than 12 months after we left Afghanistan is, I don't think, yet a moment where we can take a breather and say, okay, this is over. 
Several points here. First of all, there is a laundry list of Al-Qaeda affiliates operating in Afghanistan for quite a while now. So you have Central Asians, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, Imam Bukhari uh, uh, battalion, or the Islamic Jihad movement. You have Vigas with the Islamic uh, Turkestan Islamist Party. You have Pakistani Al-Qaeda affiliates, Lashkar Chaiba, Jaisher Mohammed, and Tariq Taliban. Pakistan already operating in Afghanistan. These and of course, Al-Qaeda and Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. All of these groups operated independently of each other with various parts of the government, of the Taliban forces in the past. This needs to be reorganized. And this is, I think, one of the first things that the new leader of Al-Qaeda may potentially do into a coherent structure. That takes time, number one. Number two, Al-Qaeda's style of terrorism was never compared to Islamic State style of terrorism. Islamic State is very happy if someone takes a knife and knifes down some people down in London or in Berlin or in Paris. And that's their way they want to do terrorism. It's constant trip, trip, small scale attack. Al-Qaeda always was more of the spectacular variant terrorism attack. If you think about the Pensacola attack in 2019, 10 years the individual had joined the Saudi uh, Air Force before he had the opportunity to go to America and then conduct his attack there. So they're very patient. So a year is really not that much to say, well, Al-Qaeda won't be organizing terror attacks outside Afghanistan and couple that with the remote provinces and the reorganization efforts that the Taliban already undertaken in this terror network. I think we do still have a very concerning uh, combination here. Yes, it's good news, but it's just one individual, one Al-Qaeda member died in Kabul on Saturday last week. No one else. All the others are still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hans, thank you so much for putting that in context and for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you very much for joining the podcast once again. It's always a pleasure to have you. And uh, no doubt we will be talking about um, this and the fallout uh, from uh, Al-Zawahiri's death in the coming months. So um, let's keep in touch. And uh, thank you again for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.